Welcome to Talking Materials Handling. In each episode, you'll hear from the thought leaders who are shaping what happens inside the four walls of the distribution center. We'll cover the gamut from automation and robots to software and the next-gen technologies that are enabling the workforce of tomorrow. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, the executive editor of Modern Materials Handling. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments. Now, to today's episode. Well, hello and welcome to today's episode of Talking Materials Handling. Reshoring, nearshoring, and friendshoring. How geopolitics is changing where and how you make and source materials. I'm Bob Troublecock, and joining me today are Rosemary Coates and Tom Cook. Rosemary is the founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute. And by the way, she's a longtime friend of Supply Chain Management Review, which I edited for years. And Tom is the managing partner of Blue Tiger International. Rosemary, Tom, welcome. Thanks. Appreciate the opportunity to chat. Same here. Thank you, Bob. We very much appreciate it. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're glad to have you. Uh, First, this is one in a series of podcasts I'm recording to highlight content from NextGen 2023, where Rosemary and Tom were presenters on this topic. Now, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, and when I was a kid, we were told we were the second largest steel producing region in the country. And if that wasn't enough, nearby Lordstown was the site of the largest GM plant in the country. When I was a kid, manufacturing was the beating heart of the community. And then little by little, it just all went away. Youngstown Sheet and Tube, the region's biggest employer, closed a few months after I graduated from college in 1977. And little by little, the steel industry just evaporated in Youngstown. And then Lordstown closed in 2019. At that time, it employed 1,400, which is a fraction of the 25,000 plus the plant employed in its heyday, not to mention all the tier one auto suppliers that were in the Youngstown area to feed the Lordstown plant. What people in Youngstown were told was that American manufacturing just couldn't compete. So let's fast forward a little bit. Today, U.S. manufacturing is back, and with it, we're seeing production that was shipped overseas returning to North America, the U.S., but also Canada and Mexico. And with all of the political turmoil in the world, there are more incentives than ever to localize production, to make where you sell and buy where you make. So that's what I'm going to explore with Rosemary and Tom. They're both experts on this. So To get us started, can each of you just tell us a little bit about your experience with this topic? Tom, I'm going to start with you, and then Rosemary, you can take it from there. Thank you, Bob, and pleasure to be on the uh, panel with you, uh, Rosemary. Um, So uh, I'm the managing director partner for uh, Blue Tiger International. We're um, global supply chain management consultants. Um, We help companies manage various aspects of their global supply chain. And we particularly focus on the areas of risk and spend and business process improvement. This backs right into this conversation about um, the whole concept of nearshoring, which is a big subject matter. And and basically it's defined as, you know, moving uh, manufacturing out of China and other places around the world where there's potential serious levels of risk. Um, And as we all went through the COVID, we all know that uh, there was a crisis in the supply chain. A lot of that had to do with the sourcing that came out of Asia um, and a lot of companies' decision 
to either minimize uh, the amount of uh, sourcing they do internationally and also move it to places which are friendlier or closer or back here to the United States. And I think that's the gist of a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Rosemary? Yeah, so I'm the managing director, the executive director of the Reshoring Institute. <clears throat> and we are a 501c3 nonprofit and nonpartisan organization focused on helping our clients to rethink their global supply chain strategies. And also, uh, so that's 50% of our mission. We also do a heavy amount of research and publish all of that on our website at reshoringinstitute.org. <clears throat> and then we also have a very robust um, internship program. Uh, where we take graduate student interns and MBA programs and masters of engineering programs. And we put them to work with our research um, and helping our consult on our consulting projects. And we teach them about manufacturing. So they're going to become the leaders in the future. So it's kind of fun to, to see these rising stars. Um, I've been in global supply chain management for 35 years, done a lot of global consulting, particularly with emphasis in China. And, and now helping companies rethink that strategy and pot potentially reestablish manufacturing in the U.S. And we're also helping a lot of companies establish manufacturing in Mexico now. So, so Rosemary, Rosemary, you're kind of the reformed reshoring expert, right? Yes, <laughs> that's, that's exactly uh, right. That's a great way to say it, yes. <laughs> So, Tom, uh, you used um, at least one of the buzzwords we're hearing out there when you were giving your introduction. So the three that we hear are nearshoring, reshoring, and friendshoring. They are buzzwords. Can you explain what's the difference between them? How do you define each of those? Uh, well, I'll start out with actually the similarity of the three is the idea of moving where you're currently sourcing from to somewhere else. Uh, but when we look at the three that we talk about, the idea of uh, uh, near sourcing is moving the manufacturing and the purchasing that we do from those manufacturers closer to the United States, uh, Canada, Mexico, um, the Caribbean islands, um, and so forth would be examples of that. Um, Friendshoring would be an example of moving it to countries where we have higher degree of allegiance, where we have more of a friendlier type relationship uh, where we're allies both politically and militarily and so forth. So countries like that would be uh, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, Malaysia, uh, Israel, um, Turkey, uh, some European countries, some South American countries and so forth would be friendshoring. And the concept of uh, near sourcing, uh, which reshoring is that reshoring is where we're actually moving it back here to the United States. And obviously that would be a preferable trend in more cases, but obviously you have to look at a number of factors in your supply chain or where the costs are, um, where there are challenges uh, and in making the decision of which of those three you're gonna use um, has really become the challenge that, that you have involved. And specifically with uh, reshoring, bringing it back to the United States, one of the biggest challenges that companies face is, the, is trying to get the required skilled labor that you need in manufacturing and distribution. And a lot of companies can build a model that supports moving it back to the United States, but the big challenge really becomes 
where do we get the people in that geographic location to take on these uh, jobs? Oh, thank you, Tom. So, so Rosemary, you and I have had this conversation for a long time. As I mentioned, you know, you've been writing for Supply Chain Management Review. You predate me, and I went back to 2013, <laughs> and I had you speak on this topic at the very first conference I put on back in 2016. So I know you've got a lot of history here. Just kind of take us back and talk a little bit about when the reshoring movement started. You know, what was the trigger and then how has it grown or evolved over, say, the past decade? Because this isn't new. No, it's certainly not new. Um, so I spent a better part of uh, 15 years helping companies offshore to China. Um, and as you said, I'm a, a reformed uh, China outsourcer, although we, we still have clients that are interested in moving production to China or expanding there. But by and large, uh, you know, that was the thing to do in the early 2000s. Uh, it made sense economically. It was what all competitors were doing. Uh, everybody wanted to move to China. And so um, as a management consultant, I was helping and uh, became an expert in Chinese manufacturing. And then along came the 2012 presidential election. And we had uh, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama that were China bashing like crazy, saying both of them saying that China it was all China's fault and our economy was failing because of China and they were stealing our jobs and manipulating currency and on and on and on, which most of that had a grain of truth to it. Um, but at any rate, I'm I'm starting to feel a little embarrassed about what I had been doing for 15 years. Plus, I think, you know, there was um, a significant amount of job loss that I felt responsible for. And all of this resulted in uh, putting together with my team a uh, methodology uh, for looking at the possibility to reshore. And a lot of clients started talking to us about the potential to reshore. I mean, I, I can remember having a conversation with the CEO and he looked me in the eye and he said, is it even possible to manufacture in America anymore? And so um, we put together a methodology and started helping think, helping our clients think through those opportunities. So that was 2012. So we're, we're going on, you know, 12, 15 years now um, that reshoring has been around, that term's been around. And over the past, uh, say, um, 10 years or so, it slowly grew little by little. There was interest. Um, there was talk about it at, at the executive level. Um, but then the pandemic happened. And I think what happened there is that so much risk was exposed in global supply chains. I mean, people couldn't get their shipments. They couldn't get their parts. Um, you know, the shipping schedules were were uh, shut down. The uh, passenger aircraft was grounded. And that, that represents 50% of the cargo that moves worldwide, moves as belly cargo and passenger aircraft. So when they shut down passenger aircraft, it significantly reduced the ability to move cargo out of China. I mean, these were miserable months, right? Just not not only for us individually, but in, in global supply chains. And that really ignited the reshoring movement. So now, you know, I think most companies have it on their <clears throat> on their board agenda. So uh, reshoring and sustainability are the two that go hand in hand on board agendas and they're related. 
So the closer you are to your customer base, you're manufacturing your customer base, the less carbon footprint you make. And uh, so that plays into the sustainability issues. So now it's, it's really quite a popular idea. And as uh, the growth has been phenomenal, I mean, we have lots and lots of clients that we're helping with their projects and um, we're busy as a result of that. Uh, hey, uh, Rosemary, before I go to Tom again, just a quick follow up to that, because you mentioned, you know, the election where it became an issue uh, with both uh, Obama and Romney. Was there any was was politics the catalyst for sort of kicking it off? Was there, you know, maybe lesser, but an event like COVID that said, hey, maybe we really need to rethink this. And again, I'm talking, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Or was it just that it became, you know, the political discussion about jobs going away and what can we do? Well, you know, I've been in, in business long enough to know that it's cyclical and um, popular ideas come and go. And I think part of it was the introduction of this thought process by the politicians um, thinking about China and, and jobs that were going away as a result of that and starting to feel a little uncomfortable about how much production was actually gone uh, out of um, the American economy. So, so I think it was ignited by, um, by politics. And then fast forward, of course, the, the Trump administration uh, uh, imposed, well, started a trade war and imposed uh, the 25% tariffs on imports from China, um, the aluminum and steel tariffs, the 232 tariffs on, on that applied to a lot of countries. But these things, I think, really triggered a rethinking of global strategies as a result of that. So, yeah, I mean, politics plays an important role. Um, today, politics in, in terms of funding of the three big acts, the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, and the um, Infrastructure Act, all three of those are going to, I think they haven't yet, but they're going to pump significant money into the U.S. economy to boost manufacturing. So politics is intertwined with uh, the ideas and how business responds. Um, Tom, uh, talking about catalysts, uh, you know, the forced labor issue in China has been in the news. To what extent has that expedited the effort, uh, you know, for companies to bring manufacturing back? So there's always been rules going back as far as the 1930s uh, on the books with U.S. Customs um, about forced labor issues and trying to protect uh, the idea of procurement from foreign suppliers that use for various types of forced labor and child labor, indentured servant labor, things like that in their manufacturing process. Um, and it's kind of gone along for close to 70 years um, with you know various cycles of when they do pay attention to it when they when they don't, um, but under the Biden administration, he has kind of moved this as to the front of the area of concern by customs, and now for the last two years, customs has significantly increased their concern over forced labor in general, and then Congress supported this effort through the uh, Uyghur Act. Um, which kind of isolated this specifically to China and the indentured servants used of the Uyghur labor in the western part of that country. Um, in fact, uh, for the last two years, um, close to as much as $3 billion worth of merchandise 
has been seized by U.S. Customs uh, as it's come through the border, where there is a concern that there was forced labor used in the manufacturing process. The big issue that's associated with this is that it becomes very difficult for the importer and the procurement team at that importer to vet out whether or not a supplier has forced labor in their supply chain, because it's not only a view of their manufacturing, but it's also of that manufacturer's sourcing of their tier one and tier two suppliers of where their raw materials come from and where their product comes from. And one of the best examples of that is in the solar panel industry, which is a targeted industry from U.S. Customs in this area of forced labor. So while most of the manufacturing is done in the eastern part of, the, of China, where there's either none or very little forced labor, the uh, glass manufacturing component is sand, and specifically silicate, which comes from sand. That comes from the western part of China, where you have uh, forced labor issues. So right now, uh, companies that are importing solar panels from China um, are having a problem in bringing that through the border because they have to proactively try to identify or reactively try to identify that forced labor is not being used in the supply chain uh, in China on the goods leaving there into the United States. And that's a very difficult thing to prove. And all of us that are consultants and helping companies try to navigate this uh, have come up with various ways to help mitigate this circumstance. But right now, there's no absolute proven way that's certainly 100% acceptable by customs. And that's where the dilemma takes place, because most importers want to do the right thing and act with due diligence and reasonable care. Uh, but it's not being identified that well, because it's something that customs is also going through as a new event for them to be concerned about. So there aren't standards and all kinds of absolute circumstances that we're dealing with in trying to vet this out at this point in time. Rosemary, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree with Tom 100% on, on what he mentioned. Um, the Uyghurs, though, are particularly singled out. Now, as Tom mentioned, um, we've never allowed products to be imported into the U.S. that are made with forced labor, that so prison labor, that sort of thing anywhere in the world, not just China. And there's lots of prison labor around the world that is excluded from the U.S. But identifying those products is, is the difficult part. And the Uyghurs in the Zhejiang province in, in far western China, the Uyghurs are um, a, a Muslim community, um, more akin to Arabs than they are to Chinese. And um, they are put in concentration camps, essentially, to be sort of what they call re-educated. Um, and cotton is probably the biggest um, commodity that's produced in Zhejiang province. So what Customs has done, um, as Tom was mentioning, it's not just the raw materials, but the end products that are also excluded if they include um, products that are made in Zhejiang province or by Uyghurs. Uh, and Customs is now testing things like apparel. So like if you're going to import T-shirts, for example, um, it can be tested in a lab for the DNA that is related to cotton that's grown in Shishang province. And so it's not a matter of just tracing your supply chain, which is very important, all the way back to raw materials. But also now there are sophisticated measures and tests that go on 
uh, in the import process into the U.S. that will exclude these products. And, uh, you know, this is a result of the, I think, the general feeling that human rights are um, um, coming to the forefront of companies and, and sourcing products around the world and should be of concern to supply chain people. Um, whether you're managing supply chains or you're in a procurement role or, or wherever you are, um, thinking about who's making those products and the raw materials that go into those products has become an important aspect of your job. Uh, I'd, I'd like to throw a question out to both of you. I'll start with Tom. Um, this comes out of a conversation I had over the years with MIT. Um, but to follow up, and I'll use an example, for instance, Black & Decker has, ad has adopted this strategy more recently. And I wanted to see if you think this is like outdated or are we still doing it? So what, what MIT was arguing um, was that we weren't so much reshoring as making where you sell and buying where you make. And they were, they were imagining that, um, you know, if you were selling in Western Europe, you might make in Eastern Europe um, to sell in Western Europe because the production costs were lower in Eastern Europe and then develop, you know, your supply chain uh, and your sourcing in Eastern Europe. Similarly, in the U.S., you might bring things back to the U.S., but also in, you know, Mexico and Canada. But they saw this sort of global platform kind of thing. And I remember having a conversation with Black & Decker in 2021, I think it was, uh, and Black & Decker saying, you know, that was the strategy they were adopting. Yes, they were bringing things back to the U.S. from China, but they were all mo also moving things into Eastern Europe and other places. Um, and again, I'll start with Tom. Do you see that going on or after COVID, did that sort of change that, you know, that dynamic? Um I'm, I'm going to I'm going to defer to Rosemary to answer okay. it first. And I'm going to come in at the second. I want to think about uh, how best to answer that question. OK, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm throwing this at you, Rosemary. Yeah, no, 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 that's fine. Yeah. I mean, we are absolutely seeing that. So um, making things closer to where you're selling them is the premise of reshoring. So it's the it's the fundamental um, <clears throat> looking to uh, make things closer to to where it's they're actually being consumed. And you're right about Europe. So uh, Europeans are now, we, we at the Reshoring Institute, we are affiliated with about 20 universities in, um, in the U.S. So about, yeah, about 20 in the U.S. and about 20 in Europe as well. We're part of a, a team there that was funded by the EU. <clears throat> and they're going through the same process, looking for low-cost manufacturing environments that they could then serve Western Europe. And those low-cost environments, of course, are Poland and Czechoslovakia and um, <clears throat> some, of the, some of the Balkans. Um, but it's a little risky right now, I would say. So, you know, there's a, paw, a, a hesitation uh, by companies looking to, to um, manufacture there right now because of the war in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> on, on the U.S. side, Absolutely. I would say 80% of the clients that we work with are considering Mexico. Um, Mexico, we're, we're right in the middle of doing a major cross-border commerce study um, that should be published here in the next few weeks. But we looked at all the border towns um, in, the, in the U.S. with Mexico and um, researched the cross-border commerce, what's happening, um, what, you know, what the wages are like. So, for example, Tijuana, uh, the minimum wage in Tijuana is about $2.25 an hour as of January um, this year. 
which is, you know, sort of astonishing, right? And that makes the cost of a product where you have a lot of labor be really attractive to put it in into Mexico. And the, it's a similar uh, wage rate along the border towns um, with Texas and, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I took one of our interns down to Laredo a couple of months ago, uh, and we looked at the trucks coming across the border. I, I got to say, it was astonishing. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of things in my life in supply chain management. Uh, and I was, it was jaw dropping. I mean, they process 14,000 trucks per day. And I had to ask three times to make sure that was the right statistic. They said, yes, 14,000 a day. And they do that because they have a fully automated system that reads the the truck license plates, uh, facial recognition on on uh, the drivers, uh, you know, preloaded information about the truck. They scan the truck to make sure there isn't any contraband in it. And this all happens in a matter of seconds as they drive through a corridor, an electronic corridor. So, you know, these kind of developments, and there's several others that I could cite too, but these kind of developments along the border give us a natural um, ability to leverage a low cost manufacturing environment in Mexico. And they are, Mexico is working very hard to develop their infrastructure and to support this kind of manufacturing. So that was a long-winded answer to the question. Yes, absolutely. Um, our clients are considering, you know, hopefully bringing some manufacturing back to the U.S. And as an alternative, when they need a low-cost environment and uh, cheap labor, looking at Mexico. Tom, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I just had a couple of additional thoughts. As one is, I just want to mention that uh, we too have a big footprint in Mexico. I have engineers on site there uh, helping companies uh, build into the program. But the specific program that really works is called the Matilodora. Um, and, that, and that provides a tremendous advantage to the foreign company and the Mexican company in investing in um, their infrastructure there to do manufacturing and then the, the financial benefits for then bringing those goods into the United States. Um, the one thing I just want to mention about this whole subject matter is that when you really look at globalization and you take the larger corporations in the United States, Fortune 2000 companies in that size, in globalization, you know, if you're thinking about export and import, how could we um, concept, uh, create a concept of trying to sell our products uh, into foreign countries without a, a mutual, con, you know, mutual circumstance of us buying from them? And, and the issue is that really a balance needs to be looked at uh, both politically and internationally that, that you can't have a dominance of one country in the world um, uh, that takes over the whole world of import and export. And I think, you know, for many years, particularly from the 1930s all the way to around 1970, 1980, the United States was in a very dominant position in both import and export. Um, but that, that in the last 30 years, that has shifted to China. And I think that has created a vulnerability in most companies' minds that that, that imbalance, not, not the concept of that we should be having manufacturing in China, but the balance has gone out of whack where so much of their percentage, in some cases 100% of their manufacturing dependency was on China. And then the vulnerability, which clearly seen through COVID, and the supply chain disruption from COVID 
that that created a vulnerability. So I think the issue really comes into play that most companies have to look at a much more balanced approach, a much more diversified approach to how they source products around the world, because it does make sense in certain countries where they do certain types of manufacturing because they have the raw materials, they have the low cost manpower and so forth. But on the other hand, there are certain types of products, um, particularly finished goods, uh, that need to be because of the nature of their importance to the economy, their importance to our um, uh, uh, military integrity, the importance to the integrity of the country itself, such as in medical products and in pharmaceutical products and so forth like that, that that balance be shifted to either friendly, more friendly countries or the United States. And I just think that you have to have a world view that you can't become isolated and say we're only going to export uh, we have to recognize that there's there's really the better approach is a balanced approach, not necessarily captivating all that business in any one location. Thank you for that. So, Rosemary, I'm going to take you back to 2016. I mentioned early on that you did uh, a presentation on this topic for me at the very first conference I put on. And what I remember for that was, or the message I took away from it was, it ain't easy to leave China. So it's eight years later. Is it still difficult to leave China? And if so, how do you handle it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, this is a topic that is not often considered when companies are trying to reshore. Um, they forget that there's a whole process you have to go through to leave China. So first of all, the Chinese government doesn't want you to leave. They want to keep manufacturing in China. And so they're going to do things to make it difficult for you to leave. Um, for example, you have to apply for a permit and to shut down manufacturing and they can slow walk that to, you know, 18 or 24 months. Now, you could certainly lock the doors and turn off the lights and get on a plane and go home, uh, but you would be likely banned from going back to China or ever to selling into China. And that, that's not the right thing to do. So most companies will apply for the permit. Um, the other thing is when you announce in advance that you're leaving, this creates all sorts of problems. Um, in China, uh, and people, employees are on employment contracts, and that means that they have to, um, uh, they sign a contract and you have to pay them um, during that con contractual period. So it might be a one-year or two-year contract. And if you decide to leave, you have to pay out those contracts. And that's a big surprise to a lot of companies that are leaving. Um, but if you have contract employees, that's, uh, that's the law. You have to do it. So there's a big expense there. Uh, and it's not uh, unusual to have employees sabotage the production while you've announced, you know, we're going to shut down in three months. And suddenly you have quality issues and all, all kinds of things like that that happen. And then finally, I think um, tools, dyes, molds, anything that you've shipped to China, even if in the contract says you, you own those goods, um, you know, I've had to have a few hard conversations with CFOs saying you're going to have to write it off um, because there's no way you're getting that stuff out of China. So first of all, when a company thinks of any kind of tooling or uh, any kind of molds, that kind of thing, become part of the infrastructure of the factory and they're not going to let it go. Um, they feel ownership over it. Even if you think in your contract that it says you own it, it's very unlikely you're going to get it back. 
And then secondly, the Chinese government is not going to allow that equipment to be exported. So what happens is you're going to end up with a manufacturer that's got your IP. They have your tools and dyes and molds. They have workers that know how to make your product. And they're going to continue to make your product and compete with you in the world market under a different uh, a different brand or label. So that's a really difficult thing to deal with, too. So <clears throat> we work with our clients that want to, to leave China on a strategy um, so that you minimize that risk and exposure and you don't announce until the last minute and sort of quietly take care of all the, the business of leaving um, before you know you actually take any actions and that that's really important and because so many companies are leaving china now um, especially american companies not so much europeans but i would say many american companies are trying to find alternate sources and manufacturing sites and because of that a lot of the chinese manufacturers have gone bankrupt bankruptcy is not the same in China as it is in the U.S. So in the U.S. we have bankruptcy laws. You go to court, you you know, pay a percentage to your vendors, all of that. In China, if a company goes bankrupt, they're likely to just lock the doors and that's it. They, they move to some other city, some other town, um, and you're stuck because, you know, you may have had production that's halfway finished and it's stuck in the factory or you'll never see it again. So this is a, an enormous risk also for those companies that are leaving China. And all these things, you know, it's very important to be aware of that and to work with someone who's uh, got experience in uh, the movement out of China in order to, uh, to mitigate your risk. So with all of that, I'm gonna throw this out to both of you and Rosemary, I'll start with you again. Um, I've decided I'm going to leave. What are the key factors I should consider if I'm going to leave and reshore, nearshore, or friendshore? Yeah, I think um, the key factor is to have a, a clearly defined strategy. Um, let's take, um, you had mentioned Black & Decker, for example. There's recently, this past year, and it was well published uh, in the press, um, decided to bring a, a reestablish a factory in Texas and bring manufacturing out of Tijuana, uh, Mexico, back to their Texas factory. Uh, and they were going to fully automate it and so forth. And the project failed. Um, and they were limping along for well over a year. And partly it failed because the automation, the machine tools that they had designed um, didn't work as as expected. That was one thing. Then COVID happened. That was another exposed risk. Then uh, the tools that they were making required a lot of hand finishing. And uh, the factory workers in Texas didn't have the finishing skills that they had the factory in Tijuana. And so I think, you know, when you take a step back, it's kind of a failure to plan I mean, they should have been more aware of what skills were required. They should have tested and worked with the machine tool manufacturers. You know, they should have uh, looked at the whole picture and, and done a better job of planning. There's another famous uh, example of um, Otis Elevator in Florence, South Carolina. They built a new factory and were going to uh, bring manufacturing back. They were also in Mexico. And uh, they built a brand new, a brand new, like fully automated factory, and uh, they 
sort of opened the doors and there were no workers. And it isn't because there weren't workers in the area. They had a high unemployment rate and they knew there was a good uh, labor, labor base there. But the workers didn't have the skills to operate the advanced machine tools that take a lot of technical and computer skills and there just weren't those workers. So they too stumbled along. They lost $60 million and fired the, the CEO. Um, eventually they recovered, but they lost a lot of clients in the, in, in the meantime. So these kind of things are, are very risky. And I think, you know, trying stuff on your own is, is, um, a very risky idea. You really need to have help, uh, to think through the strategies and, um, the potholes and the, you know, the misfortunes that can arise during this kind of change. Tom, what are your key factors? Well, I think uh, what Marianne ended with is critical is that planning is the most important aspect. You can't just make a decision because the numbers look right in your new home. Uh, the extraction process is very difficult, and you really need to seek professional help. Organizations like Marianne, consulting companies like ours, Blue Tiger International, and there are a lot of law firms and other consulting companies that have very specific and and are experienced at extracting companies from various places around the world and moving their manufacturing uh, to other countries or back here to the United States. So it's critical that you actually get uh, guidance. And uh, this is not something you can Google and try to figure out uh, on your own. This is really something that you really have to create a plan uh, and execute the plan. And I think you have to be very patient about it. You have to be extremely detailed. Um, I think what Marianne mentioned is very true, is that uh, you better plan on the fact that you're going to lose all your equipment, you're going to lose your intellectual property rights, and you're going to find that you have competitors very quickly trying to, uh, to make the exact same product that you were making and selling it uh, less expensively to the same people you were selling to. Um, so I think those are, are all serious concerns, but planning is really critical and the use of external support. The one thing I would like to add is that as an option, um, uh, three years ago, we had a client that was, I'd call a mid-sized man, uh, manufacturer distributor. We had helped them like almost 20 years ago, uh, move a big portion of their manufacturing to China. And then when COVID came about, um, they made a decision to kind of bring most of it back to the United States or nearshoring, which we actually did in Mexico and also in the United States. We diversified it between two locations one in Ohio and the other in, uh, in Mexico. Um, and the, you know, the, the key issue in, in, consider, in considering that is, is not only the financial benefits of doing it, but also the fact that you're diversifying your sourcing portfolio. Because what we said to them was not to eliminate China, which is what their original plan was, but just to reduce your dependency. Um, and when China realized that that was happening, um, what we ended up doing was they actually um, put up money and became a partner in the Mexican facility in the Maquiladora program. So the uh, Chinese company that lost the manufacturing actually gained it back in Mexico by being a partner in the business. So they put up capital. And you also, at that same time, protected the intellectual property rights in the transaction. So there are ways of looking at it and not totally separating, but uh, minimizing dependence and also potentially partnering with the Chinese company and using their expertise and their capital 
as a partner when you move out because they don't want to lose the business. If it means that they have to do manufacturing elsewhere, then then that's a potential uh, opportunity for them as well. Uh, hey, Tom, before I ask you about foreign trade zones, can you real quick just explain what is the Mexican uh, Maquiladora program? Okay, well, I can give you uh, the high-level overview. It's a, It was actually a program designed by uh, the U.S. Uh, administration and the Mexican administration a little over 20 years ago. And it was designed as an immigration strategy. The idea, well, how do you keep Mexicans from wanting to come into the United States? Well, the major reason they came into the United States was they were looking for employment. They were looking for the opportunity to make a responsible wage and earning. Um, so the idea was that if we could build manufacturing and jobs in Mexico, then they would be more likely willing to stay as long as those jobs were well-paying and that they could make a living. Um, so the Maquiladora program was set up to be able to do that. And in fact, it was reasonably successful at, at making that happen. Appreciate the fact that though the immigration problem we have comes through Mexico, it's not necessarily all Mexicans that, that relates to that problem. It's, it's people from all over the world now, and particularly from Latin and South America. Um, so um, the Maquiladora program allows a company to create a footprint, a manufacturing or a, an assembly facility inside a particular geographic zone along the border. Um, and when goods get imported, such as raw materials or components to assemble and manufacture, there's no duty paid as it enters Mexico. And when those goods finally get assembled or manufactured and now come into the United States or they get moved to Canada, there's no duty obligation as well under the USMCA agreement. So it's a methodology that creates this lower landed cost in raw materials and components into Mexico and finished product into the United States or Canada. And that's, that's at a high level. That, that's an, an oversimplified. That's really what the Maquiladora program works. And there are companies um, like Rosemary's and mine and others that help U.S. companies facilitate accessing Maquiladoras. And right now it's a very hot topic, has been for probably the last 10 years and particularly through COVID. Um, and Mexico has risen up to the occasion to respond to most of these opportunities. Uh, Tom, one more question to you, and then I'll finish up with uh, two questions to Rosemary. So this might be related to Maquilador. It might be completely different, but it's kind of on the same track. How can foreign trade zones support bringing back manufacturing to the U.S.? And can you give us an example? Sure. It, it, they can in a huge way. So what a foreign trade zone is, it's a, it's a physical warehousing distribution or manufacturing location physically located in the United States or its territories, um, but sits out economically outside of the United States. So what it means is that as goods move into that foreign trade zone, there's no obligation to pay duties or taxes. Okay, um, It's only when it comes out of that facility at a later date is there an obligation to pay duties or taxes. And if those goods actually get exported, there's never an obligation to pay duties or taxes because the goods would never have entered the United States. And that's basically what the foreign trade zone is. So what a lot of companies are doing is that they'll uh, source materials from various places around the world, parts and components, um, and they'll import them into the foreign trade zone. So the immediate benefit is the deferral of the duty or taxes. Uh, and then they'll either assemble something or they'll manufacture a product. And when those goods come out, that's the only time that they're obligated to pay. 
but you have the opportunity for what's called tariff inversion, where the duty rate for the finished product is actually less than the duty rate of the raw material or components, and therefore you lower the cost of entering the United States. And again, if the goods get exported, there's no obligation to pay. So it's a way of companies to reshore back to the United States, but still maintain control over their landed, landed costs. The best example that I like to give, because we were involved with this company back in the early 90s, um, was BMW. Think about the fact that now BMW, one of the largest car manufacturers in the world, and certainly now one of the largest car manufacturers in the United States, set up a foreign trade zone manufacturing facility in the early 90s in Greer, South Carolina. So when they import tires, wheels, engines, leather goods, uh, electronic components and stuff like that, the duty rates can, can range from 45 to as much as uh, 10%. They now create an automobile, which when it enters the United States is at a duty rate of 2.5%. And the cost of labor, the cost of overhead, which is, happens here in the United States in that foreign trade zone is excluded from the cost. So it creates a huge amount of savings uh, for BMW and appreciate the fact that most of the major car companies now uh, manufacture or assemble in those foreign trade zones because of that economic advantage. Rosemary, last question to you. Yep. So given the political uh, and economic state of China now, what should we be aware of when dealing with Chinese suppliers? We talked a little bit about trying to get out of China, but if I'm still in China and dealing with Chinese suppliers, what do I have to look out for? Yeah, it, you know, I think um, in general in dealing with uh, manufacturing in China is you need to be well-versed in the culture and in the practices in China. I mean, over the past 25 years or so, China has become so sophisticated in terms of manufacturing. I mean, they make Lamborghinis in China, you know, uh, it, it used to be the idea was it was cheap stuff that was coming cheaply into the U.S., but not anymore. Now it's a lot of medical equipment and things that are that require sophisticated manufacturing and, and so forth. So I think um, when you're dealing with Chinese suppliers, you need to be aware of the capabilities, but also of the culture. Um, I can't tell you how many times I was in China and I work all day and go back to the hotel at night. I'm like having an aha moment when I realized what somebody said to me or something that happened that I didn't expect and realized that it was um, because of, you know, a, a government uh, involvement or something else. So for example, um, I had a, uh, I was working on a system implementation in Beijing and we had, were making decisions all day long about how to uh, how to implement the system to support the operations of this company. It was an automotive parts company. And uh, so it was going along fine. The next day I got to work and the manager came in and he said, well, we're actually not going to do it that way. We're, we're going to change it in a different way. I, I was dumbfounded because we had worked so hard to develop a strategy and a plan and an approach. Uh, and then later came to find out that there was a, a representative of the Communist Party, the, the CCP, the Communist Chinese Party, uh, that was on the board or, you know, a, an executive in the company. And he looked over the plans and didn't like it. So he said no. 
but they they never explain that to you. You just you're just dumbfounded on you know why certain things happen. So these kind of things are you know China China hands old China hands know um, to watch for these kind of indicators and strategies and um, understand how to approach a situation like that and to um, you know repair it if you need to. But also, you know, so understanding the culture and the approach, but also having an appreciation for how hardworking the Chinese are. I mean, I've been all over the world. I've never seen people work as hard as you would find in China. It's really kind of amazing. So, you know, dealing with, um, you know, hard work and uh, focus on uh, manufacturing goods um, and the desire to serve customers, I think those are important. And then finally, I would say, you know, since the trade war was started a few years ago, the situation has changed a lot in China. Um, we used to be welcomed with open arms as Americans because we knew how to do things and we were buying products and so forth. Not so much today. I think because of that trade war and the rhetoric surrounding um, the trade war and, and, and China in general, um, the relationship with Americans has deteriorated significantly, and we're we're no longer uh, looked at as the the friendly, welcoming foreigners anymore. We're kind of looked at with suspicion. Um, as we were China bashing in the U.S., uh, the Chinese government was American bashing bashing in China, and have developed kind of a anti-American uh, strategy as a result. So. You know, as I mentioned before, this is business and it's cyclical and things are popular and going well for a while. And then there's, you know, a change. And that, I think, is what we're experiencing today. Thanks, Rosemary. And thanks, everyone. That's all the time we have today. Uh, I could this is a topic that fascinates me. I could go for like another hour, but uh, we're not going to do that. So a special thanks to my guests, Rosemary Coates and Tom Cook. And thank you for joining. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. And finally, be sure to go to nextgensupplychainconference.com and enter your email address for updates about NextGen 2024. We have a date, October 21 to 23, at the Chicago Athletic Association Hotel. We're planning another great event. We're talking materials handling and NextGen Conference. I'm Bob Troublecock. And again, thank you, Rosemary and Tom. It was great to hear you guys. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. Talking Materials Handling is produced by Modern Materials Handling and Peerless Media. You can find Talking Materials Handling on MMH.com, on iTunes under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. We're on all the popular podcast platforms. For more information, be sure to visit MMH.com. And we hope you'll join us again for our next episode.